0: Thank you, choir, for that anthem. It ties in beautifully with the series that we are in right now, but I want to begin with a small story, as I usually do. When our four boys were young, they um, went through what I just call a chocolate milk phase. That is, they discovered the wonder and joys of Nestle's quick, and I brought some here today just so you can envision the little story I'm going to tell, so pardon me while I... Any of you do this at your house every morning when your kids were little? A little bit more. I think it was genetic because um, when I was growing up, I would not drink milk ever unless it was chocolate milk. I still don't drink it unless it's chocolate milk. Mm, you know, not quite chocolate enough. But our guys eventually learned to mix it themselves. You know, when they got old enough, they would go in and get their own milk. In fact, they liked chocolate milk so much, we had to establish parental limits around the tree of the knowledge of chocolate milk. Uh, one li- our limit was one glass of chocolate milk per boy per morning. So one morning, I was in my office early in the morning, like I usually am. And um, one of our sons, who was about four years old at the time, and he was one who particularly liked chocolate chocolate milk, uh, he came into my office, and I said, hey, buddy, uh, what do you need? And he said, Daddy, can I have some chocolate milk? And I looked at him, and I could clearly see the remnants of a chocolate milk mustache <laughs> on his face. So I said, uh, have you already had a glass of chocolate milk? And he paused just for a moment, and then he said, no. And I realized in that moment that my little four-year-old son was a sinner. (laughs) We're in a series now called The Gospel in Genesis, and we left off, as you remember, a couple weeks ago uh, at the end of Genesis 2, uh, with God creating a helper suitable for Adam, a woman, a one who is like him, equal to him, but opposite him, different from him, and how throughout Scripture, marriage is a picture, a beautiful picture of God's covenant love for his people. And last week, we took a little break from our series um, for our Good Design weekend, and we heard from a woman named Rachel Gilson, uh, who shared her story with us, a beautiful story of God's design for marriage and the the power of the gospel in someone's life. Um, Now, for most of us, I think uh, that message and even the whole day, the Good Design uh, Summit, was just a bit uncomfortable. You can just nod your head if you agree. Just a bit uncomfortable. A little bit stretching. How a young woman with no church or spiritual background who experienced same-sex attraction came to faith in Jesus and eventually allowed him to be Lord of her life. And she didn't tell all her story, but she eventually married a man. They have a nine-year-old daughter. And the rest of her story is just as beautiful as the first part of her story. But it was a little bit uncomfortable. Beautiful and powerful because her story and the whole Good Design Summit challenged us to live in the, in the space between grace and truth. The Gospel of John tells us Jesus came, the Word became flesh, full of grace and truth. And it strikes me, as I thought about that whole weekend, later um, on Sunday evening and on into this past week, that it's much easier for us to live either on the grace side of things or on the truth side of things. If we live just on the grace side of things, we say to each other, well, you're okay, I'm okay, everything's okay. If we live just on the true side of things, we say, I'm right, you're wrong. It's far more difficult to live with both grace and truth, yet as followers of Jesus, that's exactly what we're called to do. And I think the whole Good Design weekend was about that. And by the way, we have recordings of those sessions if you weren't able to attend in the afternoon. We have recordings of those sessions, session by session. Now, um, on our website, you can get there by going to chapelstreet.church slash gooddesign, and you can fill in and listen to all those uh, sessions and even the question times afterward. Now, having said that, today we come to what is perhaps other than the incarnation, death, and resurrection of Jesus, the most dramatic story, I think, in the whole Bible. And there are lots of dramatic stories in the Bible. This is an ancient story and yet a very contemporary story story. We're going to be in Genesis chapter 3 today. Verse 13 verses. Let me read these for you. We'll put them on the screens and you can follow along in your own Bibles as well. Genesis chapter 3 beginning in verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. Now let me stop there just for a moment. who or what is the serpent? Now, I guess as most of us here today assume that the serpent is some sort of representation of Satan. Now, in some mysterious way, maybe Satan um, takes the form of a serpent or he, sort of he inhabits a created being that's a serpent. The Bible doesn't fully explain exactly how this happens, but we do know in the book of Revelation, right at the end of the Bible, the serpent is identified as Satan. Uh, so the question is, who or what is Satan then? The classic orthodox view, in case uh, you have not studied this, is that Satan, and by the way, that name means the adversary or the opposer, uh, was created by God as a supernatural being, an angel, but who rebelled against God, uh, thought himself to be as great as or greater than God, was cast out of heaven, you can read about that, Isaiah chapter 14, verse 12, and set himself against God as an adversary one who opposes God as God's enemy, and he's referred to throughout Scripture with different names like the liar, the deceiver, and the destroyer. So we can assume at this point in Genesis 3 that that's who we're talking about here. Satan, in some sense, has inhabited or has taken the form of a serpent. He said to the woman, "'Did God really say, "'You must not eat from any tree in the garden?' She also gave some to her husband, who was with her, I want you to notice that, who was with her, we'll come back to that, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? The decision of sin and the question of God. Let's begin with first the deception of the serpent. One of the most popular uh, television shows, television events of our culture is the Super Bowl. Uh, many of you may have watched a few weeks ago of the Super Bowl. We did at home. And every year the Super Bowl is watched not only for the football game, which, by the way, the Bears have only participated in twice in 57 years, We have a lot to look forward to as Bears fans, I think. Can't possibly go another 57 years, can they? And advertisers now pay, did you know this, $7 million for 30 seconds for the privilege of trying to convince us to buy their products. Now, advertising has been around for a long time. We all know that. Uh, And advertisers, we all know, will go to great lengths, sometimes even to stretch the truth or obscure the truth to get us to buy what they're selling. Consider A few ads from decades ago. Here's one. Can you read that? It says, more doctors smoke camels than any other cigarette. How about this one? Gee, Dad, you get the best of everything, even Marlboro. Now here's another strange ad. Can you see this? This is an ad for asthma cigarettes. For the temporary relief of paroxysms of asthma. How about this one for soft drinks? For a better start in life, start cola earlier. If you can read the fine print, let me read it for you. The copy says, laboratory tests have proven that babies who start drinking cola earlier during the formative period have a much higher chance of gaining acceptance and fitting in during those awkward preteen and teen years. (laughs) Laboratory tests have proven that. Now, just one more. (laughs) Why we have the youngest customers in the business, the fine print here actually encourages moms to put seven up in their baby's milk. Back to Genesis 3 for just a moment. Now the serpent was more crafty. The word here means cunning or shrewd. The serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say, You must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat uh, fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say, You must not eat fruit from the tree that, that is in the middle of the garden. You must not touch it, or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. I want you to see a couple things here. First, the deception of the serpent begins with a question. Just a question. Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Now first notice the serpent comes to the woman with the question. I have a question. Who did God give the command to? You remember? Genesis 2, verse 16. If we go back. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it you will certainly die. So who did God give the command to? The man. God gave the command to Adam before the creation of Eve, before the helper suitable for him was created. This makes me wonder, why does the serpent then approach the woman? We don't really know. Perhaps because she had not received the command directly from God, but rather secondhand from Adam. Maybe it made her easier to deceive. But I have another question, where is Adam in this whole thing? We learn later that he was indeed there, why did he not step in and confront the serpent? We'll come back to that in a minute. Second, notice that the serpent misquotes God. God had said you may eat from any tree in the garden. God placed his limit around only one of the trees in the garden. But the serpent intentionally twists the command of God, twists the great gift of God in the garden—the the garden in all its beauty, all its abundance, all its freedom—and makes it sound like a prison of scarcity. Did God really say you can't eat from any tree? Remember, uh, a couple weeks ago, when I used the image of a salad bar, um, if I took you to a salad bar and told you you could eat from everything on the salad bar. You could have anything at all. You could have the lettuce, the tomatoes. You could have the the carrots and the cucumbers and the bacon bits and the croutons and the dressing. You could have all of it. You just could not take from the bin that had the garbanzo beans in it. And you said to me, why not? But I want some garbanzo beans. Why are you limiting my joy? Listen, the first sin was not eating from from the fruit. The first sin was questioning the goodness and authority of the Creator. That's the first sin. The servant's question confuses Eve. She says in verse 2, The woman said to the servant, We may eat from, trees, from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat from the fruit of the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it, or you will die. Another question. Does Eve restate God's command accurately? No. God has said they, could, should eat, uh, they should not eat from the tree, but he never said they should not touch the tree. Makes me wonder if maybe Adam had relayed the command incorrectly to Eve, adding that little bit in there. Again, where is Adam? He knew God's command. One commentary suggested if right here, if right here Adam had stepped up, confronted the serpent, said, no, that's not what the Creator said. You're getting it wrong. And if he had refused to allow Eve even to enter into a conversation with the serpent, and if he had commanded the serpent to leave the garden, the rest of this tragic story would have been different. But he didn't. Now notice the question of the serpent is followed by a lie. Verse 4 You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman. Now, now, notice the serpent here directly and brazenly contradicts the word of God. God had clearly said in Genesis 2, but you must not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will certainly die. The serpent says, no, you won't. So the serpent here has moved from questioning the goodness and the love of God to calling him a liar. The serpent is suggesting to to Eve that not only is God holding back goodness from her, not only is he holding back blessing from her, God is not only limiting her freedom, but he also cannot be trusted to tell the truth. I think this is actually a position that much of our culture takes today. For example, God says marriage is one woman, and one man in a covenant relationship for life. Our culture says, no, 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 no. God couldn't possibly mean that. What he really means is dot, dot, dot. Or Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Our culture says, no, no, no. You're misunderstanding. Jesus couldn't possibly have meant that. He meant he is one of many ways to God. And then we see that the lie is followed by a promise. Verse 5. For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. There's the promise. Your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. I wonder if that sounds familiar to you. It should. Because this is now what I call the gospel of our culture. Gospel with a small g, a counterfeit gospel. For truth is no longer what comes to us from outside ourselves. Truth is no longer seen as that which comes to us from a transcendent source, God, His Word. But truth is now something that comes from inside us. Find your truth. Speak your truth. Live your truth. So the serpent has succeeded, completely succeeded, culture-wide, in convincing us that we can be like God determining truth for ourselves. Here's the point. Temptation is always a question plus a lie plus a promise. Always. Question, lie, promise. And by the way, if you pay attention, most, not saying all, but most modern advertising includes some version of this same strategy. Question, Lie, often a very subtle lie, and a promise. Most advertising is an attempt to create a question in our minds and hearts, right? Do you really have enough? Are you really satisfied with your life? Don't you really need a little bit more? That's the question. That's the hook. And then the lie might be something like this. This new cool car or truck will give you freedom. You can live a limitless life as long as you drive this truck. Or this beverage will cause you to have more friends. Or these clothes will make you more lovable. And then there's a promise. If you buy this, you'll be happier. If you buy this, your life will be better. I think we see and hear this strategy so often that we no longer even recognize it. We no longer even see it when it's working on us. It's the oldest form of temptation in the book, the deception of the serpent. Secondly, we see here the decision of sin. The decision of sin. I'll go back to the chocolate milk story. Um, When I asked my little son if he had already had a glass of chocolate milk because of the mustache, and he hesitated for just a moment before saying no, he made a series of lightning-fast decisions in that split second, in his four-year-old mind and heart. A series of decisions. For example, he decided that chocolate milk was good. And of course it's good. It's really good. No problem there, nothing sinful so far. Then he decided that two glasses of chocolate milk would be better than one. This is where things start to get a little dicey, a little less good. And therefore, his parents were limiting his chocolate milk freedom. He then decided, in the split second, that chocolate milk was so good, he was willing to violate the parental boundary. He then decided that he wanted a second glass of chocolate milk So much, he was willing also to violate the truth to get that second glass. And then he decided that the glass of chocolate milk was more important to him than an honest relationship with his father. Do you see? Do you see the decisions? Verse 6. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Now, three things we see here about sin. Just a word, by the way, before I I, I talk about sin. Uh, We live in a world now that no longer uses this word very often. It's kind of a dirty word in our culture. Um, It's treated as sort of a hopeless relic of a religious past that's no longer viable in the world today and should be rejected. So the word sin is not used. Yet I think, just me, that everyone knows what sin is. They don't use the word. They'll reject it, but they all know what it is. We all know what it is. We live in a culture of outrage. Everybody's outraged about something, right? Outraged about some injustice. Real or imagined, something is wrong. And many things are wrong in our world. But it's always something wrong with someone else. And some other group not me or my group. So our culture knows what sin is. We just use different words for it, and we never see it in ourselves. The Bible teaches us that sin is sin, not because of some out-of-touch religious rules, but because sin always destroys. It always destroys. It destroys relationships, first and foremost, between people Ultimately, it destroys relationship with God. And sin brings spiritual death. Sin always, ultimately, brings death. Now, three things about sin from this passage. First, sin always looks good. Always looks good. Last week, uh, Rachel Gilson gave what I thought was a great illustration of what's going on here. Um, she said, uh, Eve here is weighing two sets of data, she said. On the one hand, she has the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which was good for food, pleasing to the eye, and desirable for gaining wisdom. That's a lot of data. That's a lot of good possibility here. It looks good. On the other hand, all she has is God's command. Do not eat from the tree. From the day you eat of it, you will die. Trust me. All this data she could see, and then the command that she didn't fully understand. See, Satan never tempts us with something that looks bad or destructive. Never. He's too smart for that. I once met with a man who was in the middle of an extramarital affair that was destroying his marriage and destroying his family. He looked at me, and this is what he said He said, But she, talking about the other woman, makes me happy. God wants me to be happy, right? Time out. Deception of the serpent, the lie, the promise. And sin always looks good. Secondly, sin is always a decision. I mentioned this already, but it's always a a decision. Actually, usually a series of decisions, what I might call micro-decisions. They, meaning both Adam and Eve, decided... First of all, to enter into a conversation with the serpent. They didn't have to do that, but they did. They entered into a a conversation. They decided to allow the serpent to distort the command of God without correcting the serpent. They decided to allow the serpent to question the goodness of God. They decided to trust the lie of the serpent over the command of God. Then they decided to eat the fruit. Sin's always a decision. Thirdly, sin always brings shame. Do you remember how chapter 2 ended a couple of weeks ago? Genesis 2:25 Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. Now, just a few verses later, very next chapter, then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Notice their eyes were now indeed opened. But not to find great wisdom, not to discover that they were like God, but to realize for the first time ever they were naked. And notice what Adam and Eve do. They make coverings for themselves, and they hide. They hide from each other, and they hide from God. Why? Shame. Shame. That leads me, thirdly, to the question of God. The question of God. Way back um, in 1979 80, I, I experienced a, uh, a call to ministry. Uh, and so I decided I needed to start that process. So I decided to go to Taylor University for a second undergrad degree in Bible Literature. And that was before I made the decision to go to seminary, but it was, it was uh, instrumental in helping me make that decision a couple years later. Uh, One of the first classes I had at Taylor was called Foundations of Christian Education. It was led by a professor who eventually became a key mentor of mine for a couple of years at that time. On the very first day of class, as I recall, before saying or teaching anything, the professor went to the blackboard, remember blackboards, and he took a piece of chalk and he wrote in big block letters, Jesus is not the answer, and he just left it there. Didn't say a word, just wrote it on the board. And immediately you could feel tension fill the room because the classroom was filled with young students who all believed in Jesus, all were trying to follow Jesus. It was a time when there was a bumper sticker popular among Christians saying, Jesus is the answer. And he wrote, Jesus is not the answer. He waited for a full minute or so. And then he went back and underneath it, he wrote, Jesus is always the question. What he meant was, We cannot know how Jesus is the answer unless we know what the questions are. That's what we see here in this ancient text, verse 8. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some of the fruit from the tree and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Now God here asks four questions that I think are increasingly personal and all slightly different. He says, where are you? This I think is the question of relationship. Where are you in relationship to me? Who told you you were naked? This is a question of shame. Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? This is a question of authority. And then, what is this you have done? And this is a question of confession. God asks these questions not because he doesn't know the answer. It's not that God can't see where they are because they're hiding behind trees. God knows. But he's inviting the man and the woman, Adam and Eve, into confession Repentance and restored relationship with himself. That's why he's asking. He's calling them out of their hiding. But notice the response. How does Adam respond? This should almost make you laugh. But the woman you put here with me, she gave me some of the fruit from the tree and I ate it. Now this is a partial confession. He does say, he does say I ate it, But there's a blame shifting here. Adam blames Eve, but did you see who he really blames? God. The woman you put here with me gave me the fruit. And how does Eve respond? The serpent deceived me and I ate. Again, partial confession, I ate, but Eve also also shifts the blame to the serpent. So why does this story matter? Why take time and work our way through it? Well, because it's our story. It's the story of all humanity. And the rest of the story of the Bible is how God provides for our sin and shame. Uh, Years ago, many years ago now, I got a call at my office. Uh, A man on the other end uh, introduced himself as uh, a, a Christian, a believer, uh, also, was wrestling with a terminal illness, so he was at, nearing the end of his earthly life. But then he told me um, that he had done something long ago, and in his mind, committed a sin so grievous that he feared it would keep him out of heaven when he died. And he wondered if I wondered if I could meet with him and talk. So we did. We met at his home, and through tears, and great shame, he confessed to me what he had done that no one else in his life knew about. He had sinned. And he carried the weight of that sin and the weight of that shame for decades by himself. And it's that shame that caused him to fear that he was now beyond God's grace and forgiveness. So all I could do is remind him of the heart of the gospel. And I use two passages of Scripture, 1 John chapter 1, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us. Purify us from all unrighteousness. And in 2 Corinthians 5, God made Him, that's Christ, Who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And then we prayed together that by the grace of Jesus and the cleansing of his blood and through his confession, his shame would be removed. So, God's question here in this story is for us Where are you? Where are you in relation to me? What have you done? These are questions of confession. And when we respond to these questions with confession, then Jesus indeed is the answer. you bow with me as we prepare for communion? Lord God, I thank you for your word and for this ancient story. It's a story that we all know, not just in in an academic sense of knowing the Bible, but we know it in a deeply personal way as, as well because it's our story. Lord, remind us again that you are good but that we do have a great spiritual enemy who seeks to deceive and destroy. Teach us to recognize the lies that confuse and tempt. Teach us to trust the truth of your word and when we fall teach us to come to you in confession and repentance that we may be restored by your grace, your overwhelming, undeserved, and unending grace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We come now to the Lord's table. And let me just say that this table, with its bread and cup, doesn't belong to Chapel Street Church. It belongs to the Lord. So if you're visiting with us today, maybe you've only been here a few Sundays, you're welcome to share with us the bread and cup if you put your faith in Jesus. Please notice as we pass out the trays, there are two cups stacked together in each slot. Take both cups and just hold them until everybody is received. and I'll lead us through the remembrance of the Lord's table. Let's bow in prayer. Lord, we thank you for this moment that comes when we come to your table with these tangible symbols of bread and cup. And God, we come to you today recognizing that your grace does not just overlook our brokenness or our sin or our failures. Don't just overlook them. Your grace confronts. Your grace forgives. Your grace removes and cleanses. It's a different thing. So help us today to come to this table, these elements, with all that we are, with our doubts, with our failures, with our confusion, with our pain, and with our guilt and shame, all of it, we lay before you so your grace can prove once again to be greater than all of that. We thank you for your love in Jesus' name. Amen. On the same night he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to his followers with these words, Take and eat. This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of him. And after the bread, he also poured the cup. This cup is the new covenant in my blood, shed for the forgiveness of your sin. The Apostle Paul reminds us that each time we drink from this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. Do this in remembrance of him. Now please, the benediction I've chosen today comes from the New Testament letter of Jude, verses 24 and 25.